This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Hi there, everyone. Welcome to Bobcast, episode six. I'm Caleb Castro. I'm Mark Scaturro. And I'm Andrew Smith. Today we're picking up on page nine in chapter two of Herman Bovink's The Wonderful Works of God. Trying to talk about God and name God is one of the very precise issues modern and and present philosophy battles against. A man in his rational thinking says, well, no, we can't make any uh, actual significant claims or uh, really talk about God in any way because the concept is foreign. It makes no sense. All I know is that I exist. Thinking since the time of the 17th century is focused on me, me as the subject and what I know in my own head. Right, and and look how Bavink continues right where we just were on, on nine here. God was to them a king, a lord, a valiant one, a leader, a shepherd, a savior, a redeemer, a helper, a physician, a man, and a father. All their bliss and well-being, their truth and righteousness, their life and mercy, their strength and power, their peace and rest they found in him. He was a sun and shield to them, a buckler, a light and fire, a fountain and a wellhead, a rock and shelter, a high refuge and a tower, a reward and a shadow, a city and a temple. All that the world has to offer in discreet and subdivided goods was to them an image and likeness of the unfathomable fullness of the salvation available in God for his people. Yeah, it's it's all contingent on revelation and what his own word says about himself, showing who he is to us. So God is the basis of our knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. We come back once again to this point of condescension. If God does not make himself known to us, we have no way to know him. Right. It's like what Calvin says. God came down and spoke to us in baby talk so that we could even understand him analogically in in some small way. Like we can never understand God, but we can know about him. And that is amazing. Right. You said analogy there, right? We we have to use terms that are familiar to us as as creature, as Bobby said a moment ago, the things around us say in nature that help us understand things in relation to God. We can't know God in and of himself. We're not God, but we can know something about him. And in, in a small way, yes, in a things he shows in creation. But mainly in his word. Right, mainly his word, because in our wickedness, we suppress what, what, say, the handiwork of creation reveals about God. But by his word, yes, that is where we know him. But even though our knowledge of him is limited, that doesn't mean that it's not real, or it doesn't mean that it's not deeply personal or deeply impactful to us. And I'm just thinking of what we see at the top of page 10, where... For the saint, heaven and all its blessedness and glory would be void and stale without God. And when he lives in communion with God, he cares for nothing on earth. For the love of God far transcends all other goods. This sentence really gripped me because growing up in evangelical churches as I did, typically when we were told about the gospel, when we were told about salvation, what was the angle? The angle was this is so you can go to heaven. 
that like that's the end that's the thing you want but bavink here he envisions a relationship between god and the saint that is so deep that even if you had heaven and all the things that come with heaven and eternal life and the streets of gold and the great city and all that if god himself were not there it would be it would be lost it would be meaningless it would be it would be void it'd be nothing right i do think though that we've we've said personal an awful lot and i think that that can go in a really wrong direction it is a very personal relationship in the sense that god has a relationship with each and every one of his children but we don't want to start defining god along personal terms i i just think it's really important that we say what we know about god like we talked about analogy those analogies come from scripture those analogies come from how god has revealed himself to us we are not to ascribe something to God that that he didn't ascribe to himself. That's right. This is the word of God. This isn't Jesus calling. Because we only relate to God on the terms he has given, only on his condescension. Therefore, the only true knowledge of him comes from him. We can't add to it. We can't improve upon it. Yeah, we don't want to get to that place of saying the personalness of God means that he is his creation. He's one with his creation. And that uh, when scripture talks about Christ as a rock, that we in some way find or equate God with being wind or, or the grass on our arms. No, that, that's not what, what we're talking about here. Such is the experience of the children of God. It is an experience which they have felt because God presented himself to them for their enjoyment in the Son of his love. In this sense, Christ said that eternal life, that is, the totality of salvation, consists for man in the knowledge of the one true God and of Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So we've talked a lot here about the knowledge of God. It's basically been the point of everything up to this point in the wonderful works of God is the knowledge of good and the role and the use of that. But here we see Bavink bridge the gap. It's not just knowledge in the sense we think of it of knowing things. It is eternal life. It is the totality of salvation. Our salvation depends upon and rests in this knowledge. Yeah, and, and this knowledge here uh, where Bavink is getting at with the experience of the children of God uh, finds its place centered in Christ uh, and in the knowledge of Christ. For it's Christ who knows the Father, Christ who has seen the Father, Christ who was sent by the Father, as John 17 uh, in the High Priestly Prayer says, Christ who was sent to be glorified that the Son may glorify him, and that they, meaning the people of God, would know him, the only true God, and that they would know the Son who was sent. That was the whole sum of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. Uh, and in this way, we dwell with God, even right here, now on earth, while we're still living this earthly life, we have a union with Christ by the Spirit, in which we're sharing of the eternal things of God. It's, it's an eternal deposit, and it's by faith. Like, do we believe Christ is who he says he is? And if we are in Christ, if we are one of God's people, then we will say yes, without reservation. Absolutely, and all of this is to the glory of the Father. What does it mean, though, to truly know something? And what, ex like, specifically do you think is a the knowledge of God? 
I suppose there's a qualitative difference in the knowledge that we might have, say, for an object. Like, I have this bottle of water sitting by me on the desk here, and I think I know it pretty well. It's plastic inside its water. As opposed to God, we can't really know him fully. We can't really know him in himself just because we don't have the capacity for it. We can't comprehend it because, I mean, he is infinite. He is eternal. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He's all these things that we don't even really know what that's like because we are finite we are temporal we have all these limitations upon us yeah everything that we know is analogy the the whole ectypal archetypal distinction this archetypal and ectypal knowledge this this original knowledge which comes from originally is of our god creator god well it's god's knowledge of himself ectypal which is the creaturely knowledge of how we understand things in our limited capacity. I think that that's pretty much where Bobbing continues to go and kind of fleshes out more of what knowledge is throughout the rest of this chapter. A knowledge of God, rather than like our, our creaturely knowledge of, say, uh, Andrew's water bottle, is a knowing of the Father by the Son um, and knowing him not only as creature, but as adopted children of the Father through Christ, our elder brother. So this knowledge is that which has its origin in Christ. Right, right there at the bottom of the first paragraph, there at the bottom of page 10, it says, The knowledge of God, of which Jesus spoke, differs from the knowledge of created things in its origin and its object and in its essence and effects. And those are some pretty uh, key and enormous uh, differences here, um, so much that he, he takes the next several pages to go over that. Starting then with origin, this origin, he says, is wholly owing to Christ. So in other words, it's not philosophical or academic knowledge, really. Something that can't be gained by our own effort or study, he says uh, in the middle of that last paragraph on page 10. We, like children, must let Christ give it to us. Absolutely. It's to be found outside of us. He is the focus of our knowledge or the source of the knowledge. Really what we see Bovink doing here is he's adding more bricks to the house he started building in chapter one, you know, walking through science, philosophy, culture, all these good things. But none of them are our highest good, and more importantly, none of them gets us to God, which is our highest good. Mm -hmm. God has to come down. God has to condescend. God has to accommodate to us. Yeah, it's Christ alone that knows the Father, because he and the Father are one, and he came to reveal the heart and the will of the Lord. Now, go going on to the 11th page here, uh, he had said, Christ alone knows the Father. He was with God in the beginning, lay in his bosom and saw him face to face. He himself was God. Now, just that, that first phrase there on, the, on top of page 11, uh, he was with God in the beginning. For some of us, you know, that that's not really new territory, but I did want to ask, like, for us, what, what does this mean for us, rather than how uh, Jehovah's Witness might understand that? Well, we see here the groundwork of the doctrine of the Trinity. If Christ was eternal, if he was with God in the beginning, then there wasn't a point where he was created. We we would not say like the Arians or the Jehovah's Witnesses or others that there was a time where the Son was not. He has always been. He is eternal God. And, and he points to this in the parenthesis John 1. In the beginning was the word... And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And that's John 1, 1 through 5. What Andrew was getting at here, this is this is establishing the Trinity. This is showing that Christ is co-eternal 
although eternally begotten God, the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ. And we should take comfort in the fact that this co-eternal son that comes in the person of Jesus Christ and the incarnation, and it's the same son that died in our place on the cross. It's the same son that's at the right hand of God, the father in heaven, making intercession for us now. And we can have this amazing comfort knowing that this second person of the Trinity is on our side as believers right now. And in him, we have the right to be called the children of God. I think we, we also keep in mind with that, uh, what Bobbing says there t- towards the end of this first paragraph, uh, nothing in the being of the Father is hidden from the Son. I mean, he, he is the light of men because nothing is, is hidden from the Son. The Son shares the same nature, the same attributes, and the same knowledge. I'll come back to that in just a second, but you also made a statement of that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, that there's a, you made a distinction of pre-incarnate. Now, uh, Bob Inc. uses the language at the beginning here of this paragraph, he himself was God. When we say was God or pre-incarnate, does this mean that at any point Jesus Christ ceased to be God? Did he get rid of his divinity when he became incarnate? Not at all. I mean, we can turn to Westminster Shorter Catechism for this one, for instance. Question and answer 21. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. So here we see that Jesus is our Redeemer, is the eternal Son of God, and we see that he became man. And then that goes in to question and answer 22. How did Christ being the son of God become man? Christ, the son of God became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. Well, and I mean, as reform guys, we love our doctrinal standards too, but this is a case plainly made from the text of scripture as well. I mean, usually where people get off the rails here, a lot of times it starts with Philippians 2 and the idea of Christ emptying himself and the idea mm-hmm. that he somehow gave up his divinity. But then you also have texts like Colossians 2, 9, for in him, that is Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's really important. It dwells bodily, meaning in the incarnation, though he is in body, the fullness of deity dwells in him. The fullness of godness, basically. Yeah, and, and that's exactly why I take this quick little sidestep here to uh, make that point. This statement that you'd said in uh, Philippians 2, uh, verse 7, I believe, of him emptying himself uh, often can be misunderstood in a way of some Christians thinking he uh, left himself of his divinity. He, he poured out his divinity or, or or his glory. But what's being spoken of is that he took on the nature of a servant. He took on humility of being God and becoming man. Towards the end here of this this first paragraph of page 11, I'd said, reading Bob Inc., nothing in the being of the Father is hidden from the Son, for the Son shares the same nature, the same attributes, and same knowledge. No one knows the Father except the Son. It's it's on this basis uh, that he shares the same nature and attributes and knowledge of God that we can say he he does not empty himself of divinity. Right. Christ is never separated from his divinity, even in the incarnation, even when he's on the earth. So we've taken a little bit of a detour here into doctrine of the Trinity and into Christology. We'll come back and treat these subjects more in detail as Bavink gets to them in the wonderful works of God. But if you're interested, say, in 
learning more about the attributes of God, or even, for instance, learning about the archetypal-ectypal distinction that we talked about today. One of our fellow podcasts on the Society of Reformed Podcasters, Reformed Pilgrims, is doing a series right now called God Is, where they're walking through various attributes of God, and they actually recently did an episode called God Is Anthropomorphic, and they talk about analogy, they talk about the archetypal, ectypal distinction, so if you're looking for some further discussion of some of the issues we hit on here today, we would recommend Reformed Pilgrims to you as well as our other Society of Reform Podcasters podcast, we think they would all be of benefit to you. Well, that's all the time that we have today here on this episode of the Bobcast. We hope that it was beneficial to you and edifying. We'll see you next time. Until then, totzines. Totzines. Zotines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Bobcast. That's B-A-V-Cast. You can email us at Bobcast at gmail.com. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Visit reformedpodcast.com or subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you.